Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. So Julie Solomon is my new next door neighbor best friend. I know. Neighbor bestie. Woohoo! They just moved to Nashville recently. And we got the chance to work together uh, like six or seven months ago and got to know each other a little bit. And I just adore this woman and I adore her story and her heart, which you're going to hear all about. Um, And she's already never home in Nashville. So I don't actually get to see her that much, even though now she is here. But, you know, the the official, let me give you like the official. um, So she's a seven figure entrepreneur and she hosts a podcast called the Influencer Podcast, which is an incredible podcast. So she's been an expert in marketing and PR and personal branding, you know, her whole career. She's been featured in Forbes, Huffington Post, um, People Magazine, but her podcast uh, literally got, has gotten millions of downloads. She has listeners in like 170 countries. And so over the years, she's worked on campaigns for people like Dave Ramsey or Lenny Kravitz. But in the last couple of years, she's gotten to interview, you know, Amy Porterfield, Marie Forleo, Rachel Hollis, people like that. And she's just awesome. And I, I knew when we put this together, you had to you had to get to meet her if you didn't already know her. So Julie, welcome. Welcome to the show. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. You know, I love any morsel of time that I get with you. So it's Aww. amazing to be here. So tell us a little bit about your story, right? Like one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because it seems like you sort of started behind the scenes promoting everybody else and then you stepped forward and became the personality. Is that inaccurate? Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think that partly due to confidence and partly due to just knowledge and experience and then how I saw that I could really show up and serve people. And why I was kind of behind the scenes and then went in front of the scenes. I mean, well, growing up, I've always had a knack for connection and loving to talk to people. I'm a very curious person. My mom was a medical sales rep growing up. So that knack for marketing and sales and just kind of doing that, I, I saw it around me. I came from a line of realtors. So just that knack for really kind of being that people person, being someone who wants to serve people kind of in that in your face capacity was always around me growing up. Mm -hmm. And 
majored in marketing and communications, started my career in New York City as a publicist. So that was kind of, I remembered at, at one point in college, I was watching some kind of like red carpet, like Golden Globes or something. And I kept seeing these women in like black dresses with little walkie talkie things behind the celebrities, like walking them around. And I was like, uh-huh. what is that? And I kind of looked into it and it was a publicist. And I was like, I want to do that. Or a bodyguard. It could You right. could have been a bodyguard, <laughs> right. but you went the publicist route. But so I went the publicist route. <laughs> and I think at the time it was, it was a little bit of, I knew that I could probably do that very well from what I just said. I love people. I was always really good in terms of integrations, really organized type A, did well in school, could stay on top of my stuff. And I think at the time I probably didn't realize it, but I might've really wanted to tap into more of my visionary stuff, but I wasn't confident enough to do that yet. So it was a lot easier just to kind of like sit back and play that integrative role, which ended up serving me very, very well. So So when in- Let me me talk to you. I want to stop you on that part because I want to get into some of the tactics, particularly in publicity, Mm because that's like, I think something you're really good at and always have been. But before that, tell me about the confidence issue because more and more as I have learned and gotten to meet entertainers and celebrities, you're married to one, uh, an an actor, a a very successful actor. And it's like the confidence really matters on camera and really believing it. And then also the confidence to just like start your own thing and go after it. So what was the point where you made the pivot from going, you know, I, I don't have the confidence to I'm ready to take the leap. So, so what was kind of going on in your head that was the, the limiting belief that was holding you back that something happened, you flipped the switch and you, you went for it. Do you remember much about that? Yeah. Somewhere along the way of growing up, I cultivated this belief system in me that as a woman, in order to be accepted, I needed to, to stay small and quiet and just cute and just kind Ooh. of like stick to my little box kind of thing. You know, wow. it's, Dream, but not too big. Speak, but not too loud. You don't really want to be a big deal. I kind of allowed that to hold me back. And, you know, I would, I'll I'll be a publicist for the people, but I'm going to stay right here. And Mm -hmm. so I would always kind of like dabble in this idea of wanting to, all these kind of creative endeavors, if you will. Always wanted to write a book, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. So I became a book publicist. You know, I always wanted to have these creative endeavors, didn't have the confidence to do you it. You were close to the people, but you were I never was the close person. to it. Exactly. So it was kind of like, in some way, I was like feeding off of their energy and kind of felt like I was a part of the cool kids club, so to speak, but didn't really have, not that necessarily the self-awareness, but I think it's, it was just purely the confidence to really step into that and say, I don't have to believe that story anymore. Wow. And I, I mean, I know for sure, I still to this day have these moments where I really struggle with it. I know for sure somebody is watching right now or they're listening and they're going, holy crap, like that's me. I've wanted to pursue this dream. I know I have a message. I, you know, I feel called by God or I feel like you know, mm-hmm. the, this is why I'm here. They're up against that block and they're probably watching or listening because they want to do it and, and this helps them feel close to it but making that leap. So what, do you remember what happened? Because that's a big time limiting belief. Oh, it's huge. Know, yeah. Did you know that you were carrying that? Like, oh, women are supposed to sort of play small? Were you, you were aware of that? And then how did you break free of it? 
I think so. I mean, I think that if I, to get really honest with myself, I do believe that there was something in here that was telling me like, because I also at the same time, I had this small voice inside me that was longing for more, that wanted to pursue more, that was curious about things. And it just kind of kept getting louder and louder and louder. But I also knew that by staying small and not really taking action on those things that I wanted to take action on, you know, I wasn't being authentic. I wasn't really living authentically. And so it's kind of that idea. My beliefs became my thoughts, which became my feelings, which became my actions, which became my results. And so that's just kind of what I allowed myself to stay in. I mean, it was a while. It was probably about almost seven or eight years into me doing PR. I had at that point had met Jonathan, had moved to Los Angeles. And that was the other thing too. I think that at that time I was also surrounded by people, at least what I kind of look back on now that they might've been a little afraid to kind of lose me in their life. And so they didn't really want me to grow either. And I kind of allowed that to be like a really easy excuse for me not to grow as well. But once I met my husband, who is so about supporting my dreams and letting me go and, you know, having that path and holding space for that, it was a multitude of things. I think it was, I moved to LA. He's a good piece of arm candy too, which gives gives anyone confidence when they, when they land a good piece of arm candy. Yes. He's not, he's not too shabby to look like, to look at. Um, And I, I got that zest in New York. You know, I was around so many different types of people and different types of industry and cultures. And so I got this like zest for it, but didn't really have the confidence to like drive it home myself. And once I had moved to LA and met John and we had gotten married and we were pregnant with our child, that's when it really started happening. I had been doing the PR thing for about seven or eight years at that point, And I was just getting to this really stagnant place. Like I was hitting that ceiling. I wasn't inspired. I had, and mind you, I got to do a lot of really awesome things. I got to work with a lot of incredible authors and thought leaders and were a part of really amazing projects. So, you know, my work there, I don't want to kind of just shy it away because I did learn so much. I learned a lot about business, a lot about marketing, a lot about being an entrepreneur, but I would even see some of these people, even the old CEO of my publishing house was Michael Hyatt. And he even Uh, left the company to then go off and do what he does now, which is this massive entrepreneurial company and machine. And so even watching people like him, I was like, man, like people do this and it works out. Like people really do follow that, you know, and really listen to that. So if they can, like, why can't I? And it's kind of that idea of if you spot it, you got it. Again, and it was slow because I had this limiting belief took some time to kind of retrain. So I started kind of dipping my toes into blogging, which was kind of my side hustle at the time. And I started out as a lifestyle mommy blogger. I was writing content. I started to acquire brand deals. I started to really use my expertise and my technique of pitching to pitch myself for media, pitch myself for paid collaborations with companies and really use my expertise as a publicist to kind of help me along the way. But again, I I found myself kind of hitting that ceiling of like lifestyle and fashion blogging really isn't my passion either. I love to write, but fashion's not really a passion for me. Like I'm not as passionate about it as some of the other people that I see or talking about this or that or whatever. So I kind of got back to the roots of like what my why was, like why do I want to do this? What problem do I really solve for people and how does that align with my why? And that's when I kind of went 
back to the connection piece and the communication piece and the marketing and PR piece and try to figure out ways to kind of merge those things together. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll start blogging about marketing and PR and branding and maybe help these bloggers and YouTubers and content creators that are now my peers that I've met through this blogging space. And that's what I started doing. One of the things that jumps out to me about that too is just like the people you were around had something to do with, with it. And that is so true. It's like you're either around a group of people that are holding you back Mm -hmm. or you're around a group of people that are pushing you forward. And when we started brand builders group, we were very clear on like, all right, we're going to support people and help them get clear on their positioning and figure out what problem they solve and who their audience is and their primary business model. But the thing that's come out of it, which we never really saw, is the community of all the people that come to the events. And it's just like this rabid, like quick friendships that are developing. And it's like it has nothing to do with anything we're doing other than just putting the people together. So I, I think that networking thing is, is powerful. I, so I, I want to talk about the publicity thing because I don't think people understand it. And I don't think I even do a great job of it. But what is your mindset? Like you mentioned pitching. And when you think about publicity, like getting PR, so if somebody's watching and they're like, okay, well, I want to launch the brand, but I've never been on Good Morning America. And I've never been featured in Huffington Post. And I've never been whatever. How do I do that? What is your like mindset and process just in terms of around how do you get PR who gets selected to be interviewed, you know, like what's that all look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step, and I think this goes with with whenever you're trying to cultivate any type of, of audience for what you do, you got to know who you're talking to. So that's the first step because you want to make sure that you're pitching the appropriate outlet for what you want to talk about. So a lot of it is research on the front end. Like if you want an article in Forbes magazine or Forbes.com or HuffPost, you first have to figure out what am I bringing to the table? What is the content that I'm going to be sharing? And who is that content for? And then once you get clear on that step, the next step is, okay, now who is the editor or the freelancer or the writer who serves this content in this audience? And a lot of times you can find that through Google. You can find it through Twitter. You can find it through going to Huffington Post or going to Forbes.com and going through the articles and see who was the contributor for that piece. And you can reach out to them directly and say, hey, I have this idea. This is who it's for. Through Twitter or Instagram or like... Twitter, through LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age, when I first started PR in 2007, there was no Twitter. Their Facebook was kind of really early in its, in its beginning. There was no Instagram. We literally had media databases. There was one called Cision that cost yeah. an arm and a leg that people yeah. had to you know, subscribe to for a year to get it. And then you might have gotten lucky if you Googled back then. But now in 2019, I mean... Honestly, if someone comes to me and says like they can't find a contact, I usually kind of think I have to call them out on that excuse because we have more information available to us now than we ever have. It's like sign up for the $20 a month on LinkedIn, right? Like get the email. You know, it's not that challenging of a thing at this point to find a contact or to find someone who may know someone. And should you do a little bit of work, but are you shy? You're not, and you're not shy about approaching us. Like if you've done if you've done the research and you know that this media outlet produces this kind of media and this is the writer or the interviewer that covers segments just like this and, and, and I can talk 
and provide mm -hmm. value to that audience, then you just basically like straight up send them a LinkedIn message or a tweet or a DM mm -hmm. and you tell them, I know you write on this. I know you serve this audience. That's who I'm an expert in. And here's the content. Like, is it that simple? It is that simple. And a lot of times you can actually take, if you're someone who has a blog, for example, you can take a piece of content that you've already written and repurpose it and send it to them. Say, I sent this out. We got a lot of feedback about my audience. It really served them in this way. This is what we hit on. This is how it helped them. This was the call to action. And I think that it would fit your audience. This is why. I already have it written. If you want to read it, let me know your thoughts. I'm happy to tweak it for you. Let me know if you need anything else or if I need to help you pull together something else to make it happen. And they're responsive to this? Oh, yeah. They're responsive. I mean, even the other day, there's a company called Create Cultivate that have conferences all over the country that target my ideal audience, that target my ideal woman. And I've been wanting to be a part of their conference for a while, kind of put it on the back burner, saw something that came up the other day and it reminded me. And I literally found an email, sent it to them and said, hey, I'm going to be in LA for a couple of weeks. I would love to have coffee. And I also know that you have some conferences coming up. This is what I've been doing this year. These are the topics that I've been speaking on. I would love to come wrote me back the next day and said, we would love to have you at our San Francisco conference. And this is just like, send an email, lay it out. And, yep. And, just, yep. Mm -hmm. and you may, again, there is a little research on the front end. I don't want it to sound like it's just, you know, you, I mean, and I'm also going off of the basis that you are someone who actually has valuable content to share, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going go. off of the basis of that. You have something worthwhile right. uh, to bring them. Yeah. Right, exactly. But a lot of the times, again, it's that fear of like, well, what if no one gets back to me? What if I email the wrong person? What if I hear crickets on the other end? And that may happen. And you know, you have to kind of go into it with, for every 10 pitches you send out, you may get five that actually respond to you and then three out of the five that you actually land. But hey, that's three more that you would not have if you would have never reached out to begin with. Yeah. And you can craft, I mean, that's we have, good ratio. that's not like, that's not like yeah. you're making a thousand telemarketing calls and you're going to sell one person. I mean, exactly. And it's actually easier now more than ever, because when I was doing media, that was before dot coms had really blown up and there were more traditional editors that were on, you know, there were employees of the company that were on staff. They're looking for contributors. They need the content. They don't have a team and a staff of writers anymore. So they love it when you come and you hand them everything on a silver platter, you have it curated and you've done your homework. Like take a little time to read what these writers that you're pitching to or editors that you're pitching to have actually written give a little time and a little feedback to them so they know that you're being serious about what you're offering. Yeah. So I love this. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about like national TV. Cause that's the thing like, Oh my gosh, you know, like people think media and they go, good morning, America. Today's show. Oprah. <laughs> yeah. Like when is it realistic to do that? Like, should you wait? Should you just go for it? And you know, I know that you've worked with people who, who are on those, you know, have, have been on those outlets and what does it really take to sort of catch the attention at that like huge, you know, major national scale? There's a couple of ways that you can go, but specifically for TV, there's kind of a little niche here. Like there can be instances, again, depending on the climate of our culture. So if, let's say if, you're, if your topic is politics and you're coming out with something fall of 2020 during an election, you may have a better opportunity of getting a national television spot depending on what that topic may be. So the seasonal approaches can change certain things with television. 
hot topics can change certain things with television, but traditionally speaking, if you're someone that wants to hit a national television spot, nine times out of 10, a national television booker or producer is going to want to see something from you that is on camera, right? Whether that's, you know, a local television spot that you've done, whether that's YouTube interviews that you've been on, any kind of local media, they're going to want to see how you are and, and your dynamic on camera if they're going to potentially put you on camera. So the first thing that I would always tell clients of mine in the past is that sometimes you do have to start small to kind of build up your reel and build up your deck. Go to your local television station and, you know, pitch them. Start small and kind of build it up. Reach out to dot coms that have digital television shows or digital interviews or things like that. Anything, even something like this, you know, where they can just see you on camera. They can see how your dynamics, they can see how, how you flow, your dictation, all of that kind of stuff that will go into effect. So that is the first key. Those are the kind of the two folds there. You could go off the bat and pitch national media and see what happens depending on the topic and, and whatnot. Or what I always say is build up the deck and build up the reel. And then you can have a reel that you just send out and then they can see for themselves. Yeah, I think that's, that's the big thing that I learned. You know, I've, I've had a few major national appearances, not a ton, but is remembering that TV is a visual medium and whatever you're doing, the more you can make it visual. And just if, even if that's just you as an interviewer, ultimately to attract eyeballs, you have to do something that's interesting visually. The other thing I remember is it goes by insanely fast, like a five minute yes. segment feels in real life like 10 seconds. I mean, yes. And no one ever really thinks of this. If you're pitching yourself for TV, you can always do a pitch on video. So they see uh. who you are. We've actually had some pitches come through on video for us for the podcast, which was great because we got to hear the person auditorily. We got to really kind of hear their passion and, and how they were and how they really sounded. So video pitches can work really well as well. Yeah, what a simple thing. I love that. I love that. Okay, so I want to get to, you know, kind of also on the, the line of pitching is brand deals. We have a saying around Brand Builders Group where we say, you know, there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, who are Twitter rich and dollar broke. They have lots of followers, but they're not converting it to money. And Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. You know, we meet these people with a million followers and like they, they have no income coming in. And, you know, we teach all these different business models. And, you know, as you, as you know, you've been through our training and we, we try to help people figure out one. But when it comes to brand deals, like Julie is, she, she's the master. And I know you have your course, Pitch It Perfect, which is yeah. a, a killer course for people on this space. But can you just like talk to us a little bit about what is a brand deal? What's the likelihood of getting one? How much do they actually pay? I mean, I know if you're Tiger Woods or you're Michael Jordan, but like how many followers do you need to have to get one? And then what's the process of actually getting one? Because I think like national TV, we all sort of think we sit around waiting going, what do I have to do to make somebody find me? And I really appreciated your outlook, which is like, no, that's not how it works. Like you kind of, you got to go get it. So can you talk about it? Yeah. And actually I love that you bring this up because this is the entire reason why we created Pitch It Perfect was that when I was starting out compared to a lot of my friends who had tens of thousands, some hundreds of thousands of followers on social media, I had way less than 10,000 followers and I would pitch a brand and I would make 
three times more on a brand deal than they would. Wow. They would actually be accepting gifted product and I would be over here making five ten thousand $10,000 for the brand deal. And so I would have these women predominantly that would come up to me and say, flat out, you know, they would say, no offense, Julie, but how is it that I have 100,000 followers and you have <laughs> 7,000 followers and you're making, you're making way more money than me? And I'm yeah. like, well, I know how to pitch myself. And so that's when I said, I really need to create something that can support these people that are interested in doing this and having it be a really good source of a revenue stream for their business. So we created Pitch It Perfect under, under that pretense. And since then, we've had thousands of students go through it. But with that in mind, one of the biggest issues that we see from people that come into our program, one of the biggest things that they say is, I thought that I had to have a certain amount of followers in order to get a brand deal. But now I know that that's not true because I've gone through your program. Or I thought that brands were just going to come to me when I was ready to work with them. But now I know that that's not possible. And that's the thing that really kind of letting people know that there's no brand fairy that just falls from the sky and is going to give you a brand deal. Just like with anything, like you've got to go out. If it's something that you really want to make a model in your business and kind of part of your revenue stream, you got to get your ducks in order and kind of go there. So there's kind of certain tiers. First off, I will say that there's really no set number to start building that relationship with a brand. Brand love what is called micro-influencers, which is anyone that has 10,000 or less followers. We've had students that have had as as little as 300 followers that have gotten brand deals. So what we really talk about is you want to get in there from the beginning to really start the relationship. It's kind of like a marriage of sorts. You wouldn't go to someone and marry them, most likely the first night that you meet them. You want to warm the relationship up. You want to go on a few dates and really kind of get to know the person and see how you can support one another. Same thing goes when you're working with these brands. So it's really about coming and approaching, asking them certain questions. You know, what is it that you're looking for? What is your bottom line? What are the new products and services that you have coming out? Who are you trying to target? What is your current budget in your marketing plan? Do you even have an influencer budget? Do you even pay influencers or do you only do gifting? Really asking these kind of questions on the front end, it's going to kind of help you save a lot of time and organize. So there's no quite follower number, but I will say that mostly you get those 300 to 500 influencers that have that number of following that get brand deals. But I would say mostly I see anywhere from 2,500 followers and up. It's really about the engagement rate. So brands like to look for an engagement rate of at least 4% or higher. Now, obviously, typically the smaller your follower number is, the higher your engagement rate is going to be because you're not going to have as many followers that that need to engage with you. So that's why they really do love micro-influencers that you may only have 2,500 followers, but if you've got a 25% engagement rate and 25% of those 2,500 people are seeing it, you could actually outweigh someone that may have 10,000 followers, but only 0.03% of their followers are seeing their content. Right. So it's really about, we really like to focus more on the engagement rate and getting your engagement rate strong, as strong as it can be, than the following number per se. So you've got your micro-influencers, then you have your macro-influencers. Who are you talking to? Like, if you're going to go, I want to deal with Nike. Who are you trying to get a hold of? Is it the senior vice president of marketing or is there like a person that maybe... Yes. Like- so it, it depends. A lot, like a company like Nike, for example, they're going to have this farmed out. You know, their in-house team is not going to be dealing with pitches from influencers all day long. They're going to be sending it to an influencer marketing company, a PR company, 
you know, there's kind of a bunch of different umbrellas of how that can unfold. So the first thing, again, you have to go back to the research. LinkedIn is a really good place to start researching, you know, who's the PR rep and just asking them, hi, I'm so-and-so, this is my website, this is what I do. I'm really wanting to build a relationship with Nike. Who is the best contact, you know, that, that works with the influencers for you guys? Simple as that. I mean, it's really just getting out there, asking the questions. You but know, just you find somebody and ask just them. Just find somebody. Who's the um, right person? Exactly. DMing brands on Instagram works very, very well. Facebooking brands, sending DMs on Facebook to brands works really, really well. And LinkedIn. Um, Twitter is really good for media. For brands, I would say LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram are going to be your best bets. Oh, interesting. So Twitter is good for media. It's best for media. Yep. And then Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn is better for brands. And then the companies that represent the brands, the PR companies and that sort of thing. Got it. But a lot of times with Nike, you know, if, if Nike has a $10 million marketing budget, they're probably not going to go to micro influencers and they're not yeah. even going to go to macro influencers. They're going to go for the celebrity endorsement deals. What is the realistic version, right? So let's say somebody is watching and they've got 7,500 followers or maybe 25,000 followers, you know, but they've never done a brand deal. What size company would they look for? Mm-hmm. And how much is a reasonable amount to expect? You know, it's like celebrities get millions of dollars, but what does just, right. you know, kind of a, a person get? Yeah. So again, it also depends on like how full time are you going into it? So for example, I've got a girlfriend of mine that has 250-ish thousand followers. Influencer marketing is her full-time gig and she makes anywhere between 30 to 50 grand a month off of brand deals. Okay. Say that again. Um, so she has 250,000 followers. Yep. And, and she makes about 30 to 50 grand a month off brand deals. Gotcha. So posting content on social is her full-time... That's her full-time job. Mm-hmm. That's her job. So is that, that's probably several brands. And then it could what, do be. They, what do they normally ask for? Like, what do you have to do for them? Yeah. So it depends on the, the assets. Typically, it is an Instagram. It's a static Instagram post. So on your feed. Brands really love Instagram stories because of the swipe up feature and they can see how many clicks are going and it's a lot easier to equate and to follow for them to really see what their ROI is. So they really like Instagram stories and like Instagram is their main focus. Facebook, not Twitter, not so much. They may ask for some Pinterest stuff depending on who the brand is and what their focus is. And it also depends on, you know, what is the brand's goal? And this is one of the questions that I always tell my students to ask when they're reaching out to brands. Are the brands focused on conversion or are they focused on awareness? Because that's also going to factor on how much they pay you, on who they choose to work with, on why they're choosing to work with them. So that's another big thing. If they're looking to convert dollars, there may be some influencers out there that for whatever reason, they don't convert really well, but they have a huge platform for awareness. So it really kind of just depends on what is the goal of the brand and then they can align with the influencer that way. So the other thing is, while we're on this topic, this is awesome. This is so enlightening. Like this is a world that I know nothing about. Like it's very eye-opening to me how this is, how this works. And it's also very simple and sort of straightforward. It's, it's like, oh, you know, you just go do it. But what about influencers paying other influencers? Do you hear of that happening much? Yeah. Like that's a, a growing thing. 
Yeah. I mean, when I first started into this industry of blogging and influencer marketing, which was 2013-ish, it, that wasn't happening as much. But now that influencers are essentially becoming their own brand, they're creating their own products and services and getting it out there, you definitely see that happen more and more. And in the online course creation industry, you would see it a lot with affiliate launches that people would do, or they would come on board and kind of do a co-launch and support one another that way. But I'm seeing it now more with influencers. You'll have an influencer influencer who has a product coming out and they'll seed it out to other influencers to support that. Or even the brand may put some marketing dollars behind that influencer to then use to kind of seed it out that way. The other thing that the brands are doing are also whitelisting Facebook ads. So they will basically take the posts that you do for them and then they will sponsor it. So they will pay the money to sponsor it as an ad. And then that will run for a certain amount of time. So obviously, if the brand is doing that, then they're going to be saturating you even more, which means more money in your pocket. So you create a post on Facebook, like a video of like a product review or something like, hey, I love this microphone. It's an amazing microphone. And that's sponsored. So you're getting money in your pocket to create that piece of content for the brand. And then the brand's going into your Facebook ads and they are putting money and and promoting that post. post. Exactly. Yes. Interesting. So you don't make any money off of that, but they're paying you to create it and then they're exposing you to a bunch of people. Right. And what I say is to take it one step farther to say, yeah, you can boost my posts, but if you're going to be doing that, we need to have terms and limitations because you're essentially oversaturating me to my followers and I need to be compensated for that. Yeah. So you kind of work that in. Uh, this is so, so interesting. I mean, I think the thing of all of this is, is just... It comes back to that original piece about the confidence and yes. just deciding like, I'm going to do this. So I have one little, one last little thing I want to ask you about before we do that. Where do you want people to go to connect with you and follow you? We'll put a link to your website and pitch it perfect in the recap show notes of this, but where, where's the best place to find you? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about that specific skill set of pitching that we've been talking about today, you can go to pitchitperfect.net. And then if you want free resources on an array of things, including pitching, branding, marketing, I of course have the Influencer Podcast and you can find that at theinfluencerpodcast.com or iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And then my website is just juliesolomon.net. And there is where you can learn more about me. I have a lot of free resources on there as well. And then of course it links to the various other things that we've talked about today too. Love it. So we'll link all that up as well. So the last thing I I want to have you talk about is when you came here, you came to Vaden Villa. You were did. we did a two day strategy session with you and John was there and loved it. Loved meeting you guys. And I, I think we became friends out of that. But there was something that you said that has stuck with me ever since, was you have this thing, I just, <laughs> I love this so much, called special snowflake syndrome. Yes. Uh, again, I, I think the thing that just sticks with me from, from you is just that decision to just go and then just freaking do it. Can you just land the plane by talking to us about what is special snowflake syndrome? How do you know if you have it? what is the problem with special snowflake syndrome? And then just like, what do you do about it? 
Yeah, I know being diagnosed with SSS can be detrimental <laughs> to your to your overall success. Um, and again, it comes back to that confidence piece. So really, to me, special snowflake syndrome is just an excuse. It is a way in which we use certain circumstances to keep ourselves small, to limit ourselves, and to make up excuses as to why we can't achieve something. So an example would be, you know, I shouldn't have to worry about sales and marketing. Like I'm the influencer. I should just be able to create my pretty content and to post it on Instagram and to do my Instagram stories. I shouldn't have to learn about business. I shouldn't have to learn about strategy. I shouldn't have to learn about this finance stuff. And it's like, well, no, you're in special snowflake syndrome. You think that you're just this special snowflake who doesn't have to worry about certain things or doesn't have to figure out certain things. And also that idea of when we kind of get into a little bit of that idea of I'm powerless or I'm helpless to something, right? Like I just can't grow no matter what I do, or I just don't have enough time to figure that out, or there's no way I'll ever have enough money to invest in myself. I just can't do that. I'm not like everyone else. It's like, no, you're in special snowflake syndrome. We all have the same amount of time of day. We all choose to use it how we choose to use it. It really goes back to that accountability piece that you really have to start being responsible and accountability for, the, for your own beliefs and for the decisions and choices that you make. Because really at the end of the day, the only thing that you do have power over is yourself and your thoughts and the choices and the beliefs that you choose to have. You are actually kind of powerless to everything else outside of that. But it's that idea that, you know, I'm so different. I'm so unique. Woe is me. No one can understand me. No one can, can understand what it's like to walk in my shoes. Therefore, nothing will ever work for me. That's the special snowflake syndrome. I love this so much. Suck it up, snowflake. Yes. That is great, great, great. Well, Julie, thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for your inspiration. Also, you know, your strategic clarity and your tactical clarity, um, but just kind of your, your mission. And I know you're, you're inspired to, to help people get their message out. So it's been, it's been wonderful having you. As always, we'll continue to promote you. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me always. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free lifetime access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we will get you set up with free lifetime access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.